I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today's reading is in the book of John. We begin reading with John chapter 2, verse 1, and read down through John chapter 4, verse 42. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. In this passage, as we're reading chronologically through the Gospels, we'll see the following events in Jesus' ministry. We first of all will see the wedding of Cana, which takes place prior to the first Passover of Jesus during his ministry. Cana is in northern Israel. Jesus goes to Jerusalem for his first Passover feast during his ministry in this passage. While in the Jerusalem area, Jesus has a meeting with Nicodemus. And Jesus and his disciples leave the city, Jerusalem, and go to the Jordan to minister and baptize. John the Baptist is questioned by his disciples regarding Jesus' ministry in today's passage. Jesus leaves Judea and passes through Samaria on his way to Galilee when he encounters the woman at the well. The time of this event is given in John chapter 4, verse 35, as being four months before the barley harvest. And since the barley harvest is approximately the same time frame as the Passover, we can deduct from this that Jesus spent eight months or so in and around Jerusalem after the Passover feast before returning back up into Galilee. So let's begin reading now with John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to them, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, it's an 80-mile trip or so back up to Cana in Galilee. That's northern Israel. I've included a map in the written notes of BibleTrack.org for a reference. Jesus and his disciples go to Cana for a wedding, which they were apparently invited. That's in verse 2. When the wine was gone, Mary looked to Jesus for a solution. The reply Jesus gave to his mother in verse 4 wasn't one of any kind of disrespect. Our English translation coupled with our cultural expectations make it sound maybe a little disrespectful, but the phrase in Greek is actually quite respectful. As a matter of fact, the absence of a Greek verb in the first clause of that sentence requires that the English translation provide one. 
A word-for-word substitution, Greek to English, would sound as follows. What, uh, why, or who to me and to you, woman. As you can see, that doesn't even make a complete sentence in English, but it does in Greek. Jesus seems to be pointing out, in other words, that the provision of wine for the guest is not really the responsibility of him or his mother. His explanation to that reply in verse 4 is also quite significant. Jesus was not there to be the center of attention, and that's why he said, My hour has not yet come. The hour Christ speaks of keeps coming up through the book of John. Jesus is talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. Nonetheless, he fulfills his mother's request by turning the water into wine, approximately 120 to maybe 180 gallons of wine, and that wine is better tasting than the wine served at the beginning of the feast. I mean, would you expect anything less? The real story is in verse 11, when it says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So, why did Jesus perform this miracle? Well, it was for the same reason he performed all of his miracles. It was to manifest forth his glory. The Apostle Paul characterizes his Jewish brethren in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, when he says, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. Well, all right, Jews, here's your first sign. That's why Jesus performed the miracle of water to wine. It was for a sign to the Jews. Then we have a temple incident recorded in John chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. Now, incidentally, here's the first Passover feast recorded during the ministry of Jesus, verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Well, it's obvious that the original point of the animal sacrifice had been lost somewhere along the way. When Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Passover, he finds a disgusting sight in the temple. Merchants selling sacrificial animals. So much for the firstlings of one's flock, I'd say, wouldn't you? Now, people who are short on long-suffering often point to this occasion to justify their own actions when they lapse into a rage. Let me just make this point. There was no unbridled rage here on the part of Jesus Christ. 
The money changers were abusing the temple and Christ invited them to stop, albeit with some persuasive force. Why do you suppose all those merchants allowed one man and only one man to drive them all out as he was able to do? Well, it doesn't say in verse 17 that this incident was, in fact, a fulfillment of Psalm 69.9, but that's the verse that came to the disciples' minds when the incident took place where we read this. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up, which is taken from Psalm 69.9. In verse 18, the Jewish leaders asked Jesus for a sign, a sign that would assure them that Jesus is within his authority to do what he's just done in the temple. That verse is packed with implications. First of all, they're looking for a sign. Obviously, this crowd had not been present at the wedding in Cana to see that miracle. It was a three days journey away from Jerusalem. But wait, there's more. Jesus, as far as they were concerned, had no authority to take temple abuse matters into his own hands. Everyone knew that. So this must be a question about Messiahship, they're asking. In their minds, if he is the Messiah, of course he has the authority over the temple. But they're thinking, show us a sign first to validate who you are. I'm convinced that these Jewish leaders were not open to the possibility of Jesus being the Messiah. But they felt they needed to save face before all those who just viewed this incident. Then Jesus replies with a prophetic word that was well beyond their spiritual condition to receive. He does so in verse 19. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Their reply in verse 20 demonstrates that they naturally assume that Jesus is referring to Herod's temple with his comments. But he's obviously referring to his own resurrection in verse 21. In other words, you want a sign? Well, my resurrection will be your sign. Perhaps even the disciples in verse 22 were a little slow in recognizing the implications here. But after his resurrection, everything fell into place for them. At one of Jesus' illegal trials prior to his crucifixion, false witnesses were quick to point out to Caiaphas in Matthew chapter 26, verse 61, that Jesus had declared that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it back in three days. We notice in verses 23 through 25 that this Passover gathering of Jews yields many people who believe on Jesus as a result of his miracles. It's interesting that Jesus did not use these believers as a springboard into prominence among the Jews. Incidentally, Jesus makes another trip through the temple, taking these same actions during the week prior to his crucifixion. That event is recorded in Matthew chapter 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. It's interesting that Jesus makes this visual statement of temple abuse during his first and last Passover festivals during his ministry. In chapter 3, we have the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, beginning with verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Now only a select few of the Pharisees were on the 71-member ruling council known as the Sanhedrin, but Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. That means, as we see in verse 1, that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. His night visit probably is indicative of the fact that he didn't want to be seen visiting one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. He gets right to the point, acknowledging Jesus as a teacher come from God, his words in verse 2. That's based upon all things, the miracles. Remember what we said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, the Jews require a sign? As a matter of fact, Nicodemus uses two titles of Jewish respect when addressing Jesus as rabbi and as teacher. Both are terms that demonstrate Nicodemus' regard for Jesus as a master teacher regarding the things of God. Jesus then gets right to the point, and the point is the born-again experience. Some misdirected would-be Bible scholars have taken this passage as a water baptism for salvation mandate because of the mention of water in verse 5. Actually, Christ is differentiating the born-again experience from the physical birth here. Midwives often referred to the physical birth as a water birth due to the water that's released at the birth of a child. I'm certain that's the reference here based upon the context before and after verse 5. Because in verse 4, Nicodemus asked Jesus for a clarification when he asked if Jesus is talking about a second physical or water birth. Then in verse 6, Jesus goes on to further clarify that the spiritual birth is different from the birth in the flesh, the water birth. Now, don't allow people to read more into this verse than was intended. This water birth has nothing whatsoever to do with water baptism as a prerequisite to a completed salvation experience. When you read it in context, considering verses 4 and 6 on each side of verse 5, you'll have to agree. 
Now, if that concept seems difficult to comprehend for Nicodemus, Jesus adds to his explanation that so is the wind hard to understand in verse 8. You can see its effects and you can hear it, but you can't see the actual wind. The exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus in verses 9 through 13 would indicate that Nicodemus was open but not accepting of this new spiritual concept, the work of the Spirit. Jesus reacts to Nicodemus in such a way that signals the irony of a master teacher having no understanding of spiritual issues. Now, we know that the Pharisees were all about doing and about legalism. Spiritual leadership was a foreign concept to them. It would appear that Nicodemus is present all the way down to verse 21. In verse 12, we get an indication that Nicodemus is still not convinced about the true identity of Jesus as the Christ. So what sign will be given to Nicodemus? Again, remember 1 Corinthians one twenty-two: the Jews require a sign? Well, here's the sign, the crucifixion and resurrection. There it is in verse 14 where Jesus talks about the serpents that were sent by God among the Israelites when they murmured against God back in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. How did those people get healed from the bite of the serpents back then? Well, it was a brass serpent elevated upon a pole. When those people who were bitten looked upon this serpent, they were healed. Here is yet another reference to the cross and resurrection as a sign of the Messiahship of Jesus, given right here at the beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus. Then Jesus gives a clear presentation to Nicodemus of the spiritual battle that exists between light and darkness, salvation and condemnation. Incidentally, we don't know the outcome of this meeting with regard to the salvation of Nicodemus. However, we do see Nicodemus paying his respects to Jesus after the crucifixion in John chapter 19, verse 39. It's also important to recognize that Jesus presents himself to Nicodemus as a solution to a problem that all Jews wanted remedied. They looked for a day when they would find favor with God once again, as it was back in the days of King David. Jesus makes the comparison. The sickness of verse 14 and the serpent on the pole remedy is like the spiritual blindness experienced by Nicodemus along with the other Jews and the cross. Nicodemus reflects the attitude of his fellow Jews in this passage as he does not recognize the spiritual problem of Israel, just their governmental predicament. Therefore, verses 15 to 21 are to be understood in light of the illustration of verse 14. The people were spiritually ill before Jesus' manifestation, just as those snake-bitten people were back in Numbers. Those who refused to look upon the brass serpent for healing in back in Numbers 21, well, they died. Likewise, those who refused to trust Jesus as Savior by being born again spiritually, well, they will die spiritually. This is succinctly expressed in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And why will people decline such an offer of spiritual life? Well, there's your answer in verse 19. It says, because their deeds were evil. Now, that's because truth and light are compatible. People miss the truth and decline salvation in Christ, 
because their deeds are compatible with darkness, as in compatible with evil. Psalm 10.4 expresses it well like this. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. All right, in our next passage, in John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36, we'll get John the Baptist to weigh in on Jesus, beginning with verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now these events aren't recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So here's John the Baptist preaching and baptizing when along comes Jesus. Can someone please put this into perspective for us? The disciples of John the Baptist require clarification regarding John's mission compared to the mission of Jesus. John begins addressing this issue in verse 27, and he clearly identifies his own role in verse 30 when he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist is then very clear about the identity and mission of Jesus in verse 36. He says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If there had been any question about the respective roles of John the Baptist and Jesus, well, this settles it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin recording the earthly ministry of Jesus after the imprisonment of John the Baptist. Therefore, only John's gospel has this early exchange regarding the differences between Jesus and John the Baptist. In retrospect, you can see from this incident that it was necessary for John's ministry to come to a close at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Now, if you'd like more information regarding John the Baptist and his ministry, then look at the article that I've written under the topic section of BibleTrack.org, entitled, Was John the Baptist Elijah? In chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, all the way down through 42, the Samaritan woman gets her own lesson on water, living water. Verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, 
though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is a spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receive wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. 
Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Staying around Judea, that was Jerusalem and the surrounding area, that was always intense. That's where the Sanhedrin members lived. That's where Jewish religious scrutiny abounded. It would appear that from even the early portion of Jesus' ministry, an all-points bulletin had been issued on Jesus all around Jerusalem. Galilee was in northern Israel and seemed to serve as the home base for Jesus and his disciples at this point in time. In between Jerusalem and Galilee was Sychar, a city in Samaria. You can look at the map on the right of the written notes of BibleTrack.org for a point of reference there. The reference in verse 5 here regarding Jacob and Joseph goes back to Genesis chapter 48, verse 22. The Samaritans were a mixed breed of not fully Jewish people as far as the Jews were concerned. And if you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org, I've got a little excerpt from Easton's Bible Dictionary on the Samaritans to give you some perspective there. But let us suffice to say right here that the Jews usually avoided any contact with the Samaritans. Well, but not Jesus. On his way back to Galilee, Jesus walks right up to the Samaritan woman, and he begins conversing with her at Jacob's well. She's obviously surprised that a Jew would stop to talk with her at all. She explains her religious beliefs to Jesus and identifies Mount Gerizim, just above where they were standing, as the established Samaritan worship location, as opposed to the Temple of Jerusalem where the Jews worshipped. I have a little article also on the written notes of BibleTrack.org about Mount Gerizim to give you a point of reference there. In the course of the conversation about the well water, Jesus says in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman obviously understands the implications here when she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus demonstrates his revelatory ability to the woman and to her satisfaction in verses 16 through 19, and then the conversation turns to worship. Let's get right to the important principle that Jesus establishes here, and that point is worship. Jesus explains that there's coming a day when people will not go to a specific place to worship. He says in verse 24, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Paul would later explain in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, the following. Paul says there, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That literally means that today, God's house is not in any particular physical location, but every believer is God's house because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit which takes place at salvation. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 12.13 says it like this, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Well, we see that all believers at salvation are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
As a matter of fact, Romans 8 9 says it like this, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. As believers, we are the equivalent of the temple in Jerusalem. God dwells in us, not in a physical building. God indwells us through the Holy Spirit. That's the point that Jesus is making here to the woman. Worship now should take place 24 hours a day, seven days a week within each believer, and that's the normal Christian life. Now, if you only worship once or twice a week, you're falling way short on worship time. Well, many Samaritans that day gladly received this message, and Jesus stayed on to teach this new concept of worship for a couple of days afterward. A distinction should be made here in verse 19 between this woman's early realization as compared to later in the passage. When Jesus reveals his knowledge of her marital history, she declares to him that he must be a prophet. However, after Jesus explains the nature of true worship in verse 24, the woman then acknowledges her understanding of the enlightenment that will come at the appearance of the Messiah. Jesus acknowledges that he is that Messiah, when in verse 26 he says, I who speak to you am he. At that point, the woman fully accepts the role of Jesus as the Messiah as she heads back to the city to tell her friends and relatives. As these Samaritans approach for a teaching session from Jesus, the disciples express concern about Jesus' welfare with regard to exhaustion. Jesus explains to them that they must minister when the opportunity avails itself, he says so in verses 35 to 38. As a result, many more believed on Jesus as the Messiah in the subsequent two days. Now let's, uh, let's take a note of, the, of a reference point here in Jesus' ministry. We seem to have some indication of when this event with the Samaritan woman took place in verse 35, when Jesus says to his disciples, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Now that's an obvious reference to the barley harvest, which turns from green to almost white when it's time to harvest. That harvest typically ran from mid-April through the end of May. The Feast of Firstfruits was the annual celebration of this harvest. That's the date, which is the first Sunday after Nisan 15, to which Jesus would be referring here. That date falls two to three weeks after the Passover. So that would place this woman at the well incident somewhere between December to the first part of January between the first and second Passovers of Jesus' ministry. Now that fits nicely with the notion that the Feast of the Jews in John chapter 5 Verse 1, we're not there yet, but when we get there, that that feast of the Jews is indeed a reference to the second Passover feast during the ministry of Jesus. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.